I have mentioned on numerous occasions that I believe the events surrounding the Protestant Reformation that began 502 years ago this coming Thursday are among the most significant in church history, indeed in the history of the world. And the reason I say that is because the Protestant movement not only took the organized church out of spiritual darkness, but if you look at history, it also brought about major cultural changes. One of the very important lessons to learn is that if you want to bring about change in a culture, in a city, a state, a continent, or a nation, give people the gospel. Because the gospel is what changes people. And the Reformation changed the world. And it began, as I'm sure you are aware, and boy, I hope this works. Oh my goodness. I have 70 slides that I need to go through and I don't, oh, there we go. Is it working? Let me try again, please. Nope, let's go backwards, please. What? What am I doing wrong? Well, turning it on helps a little bit. Trade them out, Dale. Are we trading me out? Okay. We should probably sing a song. No. We did check this out earlier. Timmy, what do you got for me, buddy? You know, if we can't handle a little setback like this, shame on us, right? Okay. Oh, let me go backwards to rat there. As I said, the Reformation absolutely changed the world. And it began when a Roman Catholic German Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther in whom God's spirit was clearly moving challenged the established church of his day. And what gave Martin Luther credibility was that he was someone who was on the inside of the church. He wasn't an outsider looking in, but he was inside. And he saw firsthand the corruption, the fraud, deceitfulness of the church in his own native Germany. And while the corruption was real and prevalent throughout Europe, it was even worse in Scotland. And there were a number of reasons for that, not the least of which is, well, Scotland, for the most part, was very much isolated from the rest of Europe. And I want to be kind in what I say next, because the Scottish people have really made their mark on our culture and on our world especially in the fact that they gave us the wonderful game of golf. But in the 16th century, Scotland as a whole was not as advanced as the other countries in Europe. In fact, it was a very backward state. Scotland was on the edge of Europe. It was a rugged terrain and difficult weather, and that harsh environment created to the difficulties of the people who were living there. Let me give you a picture of Europe at that time. Europe, 
in a very real sense, was under the stranglehold and ironclad grip of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, with a corrupt pope as its head. The Christianity that it represented bore little resemblance to that of the New Testament Church. If you know your history from about the 4th century onward, things begin to unravel in the church. There was a corrupting of Christianity. And while the visible presence of God's true church was always there in a remnant form, the organized church, the large church, was very, very corrupt. And tragically, things were only getting worse. During that time, the human authority of the Pope replaced Christ as the head of the church. The unique authority of God in the scriptures was replaced by fallible teachings of the, of the church and tradition. So the Bible was virtually a closed book. Man's work had taken the place of the sovereign and irresistible grace of God. And there was idolatry in the church. There was the worship of Mary and saints. There was the worship of the Eucharist, which was seen as essential for salvation. Priests back then were seen as having pseudo-magical powers over the sacraments. There was a belief in the efficacy of relics and statues. And the list of abuses in the church goes on and on and on. And what's interesting is that the church and the university at St. Andrews, which was Andrew being the town's namesake, was reported to have had the Apostle Andrew's arm, three fingers, kneecap, and a tooth. And people were expected to worship those as a means of salvation. And again, the list of abuses goes on and on. And so beginning by the 16th century, the organized church had acquired absolute authority over the souls of men and women. People lived in perpetual fear of the church and clergy, and that was particularly true in Scotland. And the reason for that is the Scots were relatively poor and uneducated. The church owned the finest buildings in the land. More than half of the real estate in Scotland was owned by the church. They had an income that was 10 times that of the government. They were taking in some 400,000 pounds a year. In contrast to the crown, which was taking in a paltry figure of 40,000 pounds. And so what happened is that the church was getting rich on the backs of the poor. The priesthood at that day, instead of being a godly group of men, was more like a good old boys club. Think of an out-of-control fraternity on a secular university campus, okay? And that was the clergy in Scotland. And the problem was that not only were the clergy corrupt, they were also uneducated. Some of the priests could scarcely say the alphabet, and those that could could barely read their own language without stammering. According to one church historian, George Buchanan, many of them were so ignorant of the scriptures. Are you ready for this? They believed that the New Testament was a recent book written by a German reformer named Martin Luther. So what you did is you had an ignorant clergy, and that ignorance 
filtered down to the laity. Church services were conducted in Latin. And so the people didn't even understand what was going on. The Latin Vulgate was the Bible of the church for over a thousand years and it was ignored and not even read. And even if you did get your hands on the scriptures, it was a crime to read them. The church was steeped in moral decay. The clergy who were supposed to have taken a vow of celibacy completely ignored it. In fact, the archbishop at St. Andrews a fellow by the name of Cardinal David Beaton had reportedly 11 illegitimate children that we know of. What's more, we know that in Scotland, 12 of the 17 bishops had illegitimate children. The parsonages of the parish priests had little boys and girls scampering around and they were anything but the result of an immaculate conception. The little boys were often given lucrative positions in the church, and the daughters would often marry into nobility. And so things were an absolute moral and spiritual mess. Well, one of the rising stars on the faculty at St. Andrews was a priest by the name of Patrick Hamilton. And Hamilton saw what was happening, he knew it wasn't right. Earlier, he had left Scotland to study at the University of Paris, and there he was exposed to the teachings of Martin Luther, and he got saved. He published some works, and I love the title of his writings. They were called Patrick's Places. Isn't that a cool name, especially if your name's Patrick? And the main point of his book was simply this. People are only saved through faith in Christ and not by good works. Furthermore, he said that the scriptures and scripture alone was to be the authority for the church and not tradition. He became determined to go back to Scotland and to preach the good news. And he did so at the risk of his own life. He returned home and he began preaching the gospel. His brother and sister, along with many others, got saved. And what happened is that the archbishop, Cardinal Beaton, quickly became aware of what was happening, and so he summoned Patrick to appear before him. Remember, he was the celibate bishop with all the kids. And amazingly, during the course of the trial, they said, well, we're going to give you an opportunity to preach openly at the university for about a month, hoping that they would find more heresies that he was preaching. But it had the opposite effect. People were converted. People got saved. And on the 29th of February, 1528, Hamilton was summoned for a trial. And he refused to recant his beliefs. And so as a result, he was sentenced to be burned at the stake as a heretic. His death was a slow, painful one because the fire kept going out. And it took him six hours before he died. But here's what's interesting. He died proclaiming the following. He said, it is for the truth of God for which I now suffer. His last words were, How long, O Lord, shall darkness overwhelm this realm? How long will you suffer this tyranny of men? And then he said, Lord Jesus, 
receive my spirit. He was only 24 years old. The authorities thought that they had stamped out the movement. They thought that his death would suppress the truth. But they were wrong. Hereafter, Archbishop Beaton was advised that if he were going to burn any more heretics, he should do so deep in the cellars of the castle because, as he said, the reek of Mr. Patrick Hamilton has affected as many as it blew upon. In other words, the smell of his death and burning body was having an impact on people. His courage, brilliance, and gentleness inspired many. The teaching of the word of God instead of dying spread. And in a very real sense, the truth of what Martin Luther wrote in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, became true. Where Luther wrote, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. On earth is not his equal. Well, here's what's interesting. One year after Hamilton's death, a young man appeared in St. Andrews to study at St. Salvatore's College, and his name was John Knox. And he was the man destined to carry forward the work of the Reformation that begun by Hamilton. Knox was born in the year 1514 in the market town of Haddington. His father and mother were members of the Roman Catholic Church. They had two children, two sons. The oldest was William, who his dad set up in business. But because John was clearly the intellectually superior of the two, his dad wanted him to go to St. Andrew's University. Well, understandably, the death of Hamilton had aroused curiosity of the students. And providentially, or as John Calvin would say, what luck? That's a joke. Now, come on, that's, that's funny. Okay, so you didn't get it. John Knox ended up studying theology under a professor named John Majors. And, and John Majors pretty much believed the same as Hamilton, only he wasn't quite as vocal. But what he did is he challenged his students to take a critical look at the ecclesiastical and political establishment. Knox graduated and was ordained to the priesthood in 1536. And because there were so many priests at the time, he was unable to find a parish where he could serve. And so he became a notary, which was a position appointed by the papal authority. His job was to represent clients in church courts, which allowed him to see firsthand the corruption of the church. He also began to be a tutor of children of two wealthy Protestant families, and he developed there a pastor's heart. But the other thing he began to do is he began to study the Bible more diligently than he had previously. And it was during that time that he became a born-again Christian. And then what he did in something that was highly unusual for anyone in his position, is he began to notarize the documents with the following Latin phrase, which simply means a faithful witness to Christ, to whom be the glory. 
He would later write, it pleased God to call me from the puddle of papistry. Well, people got together at that time secretly to study the Bible. They were called Privy Kirks, and God worked. And amazingly, not only was God raising up at that time John Knox, he was also raising up another man by the name of George Wishart. And what he would do is he would bring these various Protestant groups that were out studying the scriptures, and he would try to, try to bring them together, and his eventual martyrdom provided them with a common cause. Wishart was the same age as Knox. He was a student at Louvain near Bessel, Brussels, Belgium. And like Hamilton before him, he had been exposed to the Protestant teachings of Martin Luther. And he embraced them. And upon his return to Scotland, he began to expound the scriptures to all who showed an interest. He was under the constant threat of the cardinal, David Beaton. Knox became his personal guard, bodyguard along with several others. And Knox carried a two-handed sword. Well, Wishart went to preach at St. Mary's in Haddington, which was where Knox was born. And in his final sermon, Wishart warned the people what a fearful fate awaited them if they ignored the word of God. And when he finished his sermon, it was almost as if God was prompting him and he knew that something wasn't right. And he told Knox and those that were guarding him to leave and he told Knox the following, he said, Nay, return to your pupils, and God bless you. One is sufficient for the sacrifice. It was almost as if he knew that he was going to be martyred. Later that night, Wishart was seized. He was handed over to Cardinal Beaton, who imprisoned him in the castle. And on March 1st, 1546, Wishart was tried by an ecclesiastical court at which Cardinal Beaton presided and Wishart said that he had only taught the scriptures, but his protest went to no avail. A death sentence was pronounced upon him, and the next day Wishart was taken to the stake at the east side of the castle there in St. Andrews, where his hands were tied behind his back, a noose placed around his neck, and an iron chain fastened around his waist. His pockets and sleeves were stuffed with small bags of gunpowder. Fearing that there might be some who would try to rescue him, the cardinal stationed strategically the castle guns to prevent anybody from coming into the courtyard there and rescuing him. And Wishart knelt down and prayed. And this is what he said. He said, for this cause... I am sent, that I should suffer this fire for Christ's sake. Consider and behold my visage. Ye shall see me change my, you, ye, ye shall not see me change my colors. In other words, I'm not going to be a turncoat. I'm not going to recant my faith. This grim fire, he said, I fear not. And Cardinal Beaton watched the whole thing happen. Well, understandably, the people were absolutely outraged. Wishart's preaching had 
popularized the teaching of the Reformation in Scotland, and his life had a lasting impact on John Knox. In fact, John Knox felt at that point that the mantle, much like Elijah gave to Elisha, was falling upon him. And he was determined that from then on out, he was going to follow Jesus Christ, and he wasn't going to look back. And here's what's interesting. Given Wishart's cruel death, along with the earlier death of Hamilton, it's not at all surprising that it really upset a lot of people. So much so that on the 29th of May, 1546, a small band of nobles entered the castle at St. Andrews, They aroused Cardinal Beaton from his bed and confronted him with drawn swords. And a man named James Melville pointed his sword at Beaton and said, Repent thee of thy former wicked life, and especially the shedding of the blood of that notable instrument of God, Master George Wishart, which, albeit the flame of fire consumed before men, yet cries out for vengeance upon thee, and we from God are sent to revenge it. Beaton's last words were simply this, I am a priest, I am a priest. And then Melville took his sword and he ran him through. The assassins were then forced to commit themselves to stay in the castle. It was well fortified and well supplied. And later, John Knox joined them right there in the castle. In all, there were about 120 to 150 men in the garrison. And it was there that Knox's real work began. He distinguished himself as a leader. He was a diligent student of the scriptures. He lectured on the gospel of John. He did personal tutoring. And the people at that time were greatly impressed with Knox's ability. And they pretty much said, John, you need to preach. And he refused. Allegedly, John Knox said the following. He said that he could not run where God had not called him. John Rowe, who was the chaplain of the castle, along with others, refused to accept his unwillingness. They believed that a congregation should select its pastor. And so on one Sunday, when John Rowe, the castle chaplain, was preaching, and Knox was in the congregation, he looked at him and said the following. He said, Brother, you shall not be offended. Albeit that I speak unto you that which I have in charge, even from all those who are here present, which is this, in the name of God and his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the name of those who, that presently call you by mouth, I charge you that you refuse not his holy vocation. And then he turned to the congregation and he said, Was this not your charge to me? And do you not approve this vocation? In other words, what he was saying is, John, John, you demand. You have the gift of being a preacher, of being a 
reformer. The response from the people was overwhelming, but it was almost too much for Knox. His immediate reaction was neither to accept nor reject it. And what Knox did is he broke down in tears. He went to his room and after several days in solitude, he agreed to answer his call. Interestingly, his first sermon was in the parish church in St. Andrews at a service attended by the faculty of St. Andrews University and a large number of the clergy. And amazingly, the text that he preached one from was Daniel 7, 24 through 25 that talks about the little horn of the kingdom which would arise after the ten horns or kingdoms had grown from the head of the fourth beast. And Knox maintained that the Roman Catholic Church, which had arisen out of the wreckage of the Roman Empire, was that kingdom. Furthermore, he went on and he said that that the Pope was the Antichrist spoken about in the New Testament. And then he began to list all of the sins of the various popes and the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. He began to castigate He said that salvation was by faith alone. Later, he would be challenged by some of the church leaders who heard him preach, but he refused to budge. In fact, in the debates that he had with those church leaders, he defended the truth, and the movement only grew and increased. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. What happened next was not only expected, but anticipated. Remember what had happened earlier to the Archbishop of St. Andrews, Cardinal David Beaton, who had burned at the stake Patrick Hamilton and George Wishart for being heretics? You remember he was assassinated by a bunch of rebel Protestants. Well, the Pope couldn't let that stand. Something like that couldn't go unanswered. And so 15 months after Wishart's death on the 29th of June, 1546, a French fleet of 21 galleys arrived in Scotland. And they were there to take back the castle. France, at the time, was controlled by the Pope. The Scots were hoping that the English would come to their aid. But the king at the time was weak and sympathetic towards the Roman Catholic Church. And so the French arrived and they told the people to surrender. They refused. And so they began to bomb the castle and the wall was breached. And the Protestant rebels inside knew that the end was near. And so three weeks after the French arrived in St. Andrews, Knox and the others surrendered. 120 men were herded into the galleys. And according to Knox, the terms of surrender were safe transport to France or a country of their choice. They were said they could go anywhere but Scotland. (laughs) But what happened is that the Pope reneged as he often did, on his promise. And those 120 men were condemned to perpetual captivity. 
Some of them were put in various castles in northern France. But the lowest of them, Knox among them, was put as a galley slave aboard the French fleet. And so for three long years, Knox worked as a galley slave. He was one of those guys who would be at the lower level of the ship and he would be tugging at oars for the French monarch. The average ship was about 150 feet long. Each ship had 25 oars to a side and the galley would carry 300 slaves who worked six to an oar and they were chained to the bench. Down the center of the galley ran a raised walkway where the overseer could go through and if a slave wasn't doing his job, he would be whipped. The shelter for the galley slave was his bench. He was given the barest of rations just above starvation. There was no privacy, no sanitation. It was hard, it was unremitting, physically exhausting work. Knox found himself mixed in with some of the worst criminals of France. And Knox would later say the following of his time there. He said, The torment I sustained in the galleys brought forth the sobs of my heart. (laughs) He no doubt was depressed. I'm sure he even thought of suicide. The French tried to convert the Scottish prisoners to Roman Catholicism. They were paraded in chains to hear the Mass. They were threatened with flogging and torturing if they did not bow down. Knox had sort of become the leader of this group. And Knox would say the following. He said they could never make the poorest of the company to give reverence to that idol. Interesting, on one occasion, they made Knox kiss a painted image of the Virgin Mary, and he refused, whereupon they took it and they put it in his hands. And Knox did something interesting at that point. He took the relic and he threw it overboard. And he said, let our lady now save herself. She is light enough. Let her learn to swim. After that, they left Knox alone. Interestingly, twice during his time of confinement, the ship sailed to Scotland. And on the second occasion, Knox was so desperately sick that the people feared for his life. But Knox was confident that God's hand was on him and that God had greater things for him And as they were anchored off St. Andrews, one of his fellow prisoners asked if he knew the place. And Knox said the following, Yes, yes, I know it well. For I see the steeple of that place where God first in public opened my mouth to his glory. And I am fully persuaded how weak that ever I now appear that I shall not depart this life till my tongue shall glorify his name in the same place. Finally, after three years of imprisonment, the new king of England, who was a young boy, in fact, I think he was either eight or nine years old when he assumed the throne, Edward VI, who was Protestant, 
arranged for a prisoner exchange with the French. And Knox, as much as he wanted to, once he got off that galley ship, he wanted to return to Scotland. But he knew that Scotland had turned decidedly pro-Catholic and that he would probably be arrested and executed. And so what he chose to do is stay in England for the next five years as a Scottish reformer in exile. He would marry a woman named Marjorie Bowes, who would give him two sons, Nathaniel and Eliezer. His reputation as a preacher grew, and in the pulpit where he was preaching, he said that his primary purpose was this. He says, I did distribute the bread of life. As of Christ Jesus, I received it. My honor was that Christ Jesus should reign. My glory that the light of his truth should shine in you. Later, Knox was recommended to be one of the six royal chaplains to King Edward VI. And that appointment elevated his influence. He preached before the king in Windsor Castle and in Westminster Abbey. But what happened is, On the 6th of July, 1553, the Protestant cause, the movement of the Reformation came to an abrupt halt when King Edward VI died suddenly. After a nine-day reign by Lady Jane Grey, the Protestants' worst nightmare came to pass when this gal, who was Edward's sister, Mary Tudor, took the throne. She was a very, very strict Catholic, and she had the title, and I'm sure you've heard it, of Bloody Mary. She slaughtered 288 Christians, including women and children. Knox withdrew to southern England, and he agonized over his decision whether he should stay there in England or go to Scotland. He knew that in all likelihood... He would lose his life once he went there. And so he made the decision to go to Geneva, Switzerland, where the Reformation was taking place under a man by the name of John Calvin. Let's see, I've got, there's the picture of John Calvin. And on the right, there is a picture of the great John Knox. Dressed in his Genevan robe, Bible in hand, ready to preach the gospel. While there in Geneva, he wrote, he studied, he preached, and all the while he continued to get requests from the Protestants in Scotland to return. And what aided in his return was the death of Bloody Mary. She died, and what happened is her half-sister, a moderate Protestant named Queen Elizabeth I, ascended to the throne. And because of that, After 12 difficult years, from experiencing the lows of being a galley slave to the heights of being a chaplain to the King of England, Knox returned to Scotland. And he began to carry on the Reformation. He began to preach the gospel. And when he went there, his cry was simply this, Give me Scotland or I die. 
He arrived back in Scotland on the 22nd of May, 1559, and he stayed there until his death. He began to battle a corrupt clergy as well as political leaders who were in the pockets of the church. He preached against the idolatry of the Catholic Church, so much so that riots broke out. In fact, the Protestants went into the monasteries and the Catholic churches, and they would ransack the building. They overturned the altars, they defaced the relics and the statues, and to stop the rioting, 2,000 troops, mostly French, were sent to suppress the revels on the orders of Queen Mary of Scotland, who was Catholic. The only problem is that the Protestant army was bigger than the French army. And so a truce was signed to avoid a bloodbath. And through it all, Knox's attitude was that he totally entrusted himself to God to protect him. When an archbishop threatened to salute him with a dozen muskets, I love that line. If he tried to preach again in St. Andrews, Knox responded, my life is in the custody of him whose glory I seek. Therefore I cannot so fear their boast nor tyranny that I will cease from doing my duty when of his mercy he offereth me the occasion. I desire the hand or weapon of no man to defend me. And Knox literally became the sounding trumpet. He said, we do nothing but go about Jericho, blowing the trumpets as God gives strength, hoping victory by his power alone. And what happened is, on July 11, 1560, the cause of the Reformation took a sudden turn for the better. When Queen Regent Mary of Guise died in Edinburgh, and by this time, providentially, Scotland had been saved from a, a protracted conflict, literally a, a civil war, and with a few, within a few weeks, Parliament passed a number of measures to abolish Catholicism and replace it with Protestantism. One of the interesting things to note is that Knox, along with six or five other men, who interestingly had the same name, John, as him, would draft a document in four days that was called the Scots Confession. And what they basically said was that they were going to be governed by the word of God. Knox's writings became widespread. He wrote a book on church policy called the Book of Common Order. And his, his faith in God was severely tested time and time again. Especially when his beloved wife Marjorie, who at the time was only 27, died leaving him behind, leaving behind their two young children. He said that his wife was his greatest blessing. Now here's a little side note. He later remarried. He remarried when he was 50 years old, and the woman that he married, Margaret Stewart, was 17. Now before you cluck your tongue and raise your eyebrows, that's the way it was done back then. He continued to battle the new queen, and he never wavered in his love for the truth. At the end of his life, he knew his health was deteriorating, 
And so he gathered the elders of the church along with the deacons from St. Giles where he had preached for many years and he gave them this admonition. Wow, where, where am I? Oh, I'm going the wrong way. He said this. He said, fight the good fight. Do the work of the Lord with courage and with a willing mind. And God from above bless you and the church whereof you have the charge against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. Two days later, as he lay in bed, a friend asked if he was in pain. And I love this reply. This is a great reply for a follower of Jesus at the time of his death. He said, it is no painful pain, but such a pain as shall soon, I trust, put an end to the battle. Isn't that a great way to look at death? Later, his wife would read to him from 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter. And he then pointed three fingers towards heaven. And he said, I commend my soul and spirit and body unto thy hands, O Lord. Hours later, Knox sighed, and he said, now it is come. And shortly thereafter, he died in peace. His secretary at the time recorded the following. He said, in this manner departed this man of God, the light of Scotland, the comfort of the church within the same, the mirror of godliness and pattern and example of all true ministers. Two days later, his funeral was held at St. Giles, which he had pastored for a long time. The service was followed by Knox's burial in the churchyard. A large crowd gathered. And one of the men who spoke said the following. He said, here lies a man who in this life never feared the face of man. And friend, in a sad irony, if you were to go to St. Andrews and go to the church at St. Giles, his burial place is presently beneath the parking lot next to the church under space number 23. And they have a plaque there that says the following. The above stone marks the approximate site of the burial in St. Giles' graveyard of John Knox, the great Scottish divine who died November 24, 1517. You know, there's a lot of things you can say about John Knox. There's some things that we could take issue with. I think the assassination of a cardinal isn't necessarily the way to win friends and influence people with the gospel. But you know what? It was a different time. And you and I can look back and see a man who preached the gospel fearlessly. And he believed in the five solas. And friend, you and I stand on the shoulders of great men like him. There's so much more to his story. And hopefully, I just whetted your appetite. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful man. And Lord, we really feel like we've not done his life justice. But we're grateful, Father, for, for Hamilton and for Wishart and for Knox who brought about great change in the nation of Scotland. 
And Father, we pray that we would follow in their example and that we would fearlessly, without fear of persecution, preach the gospel boldly. Help us, Father, to get over the fear of men. Help us to be able to say, as was said of John Knox, here lies a man who in this life never feared the face of man. And may that be true of all who know you this morning as personal Savior. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.